Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father God, thank you so much for an opportunity to study the Bible together. And Lord God, as we open the scriptures today, we ask that you would help us through the Holy Spirit to capture not only what the scriptures say, but Father, your heart behind what the scriptures have to say. And Lord, I thank you for the great honor to open your word. We read in Genesis that your word brought creation into being. Your word brought this world into being. And so, Lord God, for a church to come into being, it needs to come from your word. Your word brings life. Your word brings unity. Your word brings peace. Your, your word brings truth. Your, your word brings joy. And so, God, we invite you to take the scriptures which you've inspired to be written to help us to understand them and to serve Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll be in 1 John for about 13 weeks. This first week, I want to introduce you to... John. We were discussing around the dinner table, First John as a family over the course of recent weeks and months. And one of my kids made the good observation. They said, if you're reading a book of the Bible and you don't know who wrote it, it's like going out to the mailbox and getting a letter and not knowing who it's from. And it's really hard to understand and interpret what did they intend? What did they mean? What am I supposed to do with this? And so as we're looking at this letter of First John, we're looking at a letter that was written by a particular man who was a close friend of Jesus. And today I want you to introduce you rather to him. And so let me start by asking a question. Think in your mind, who's your nearest and dearest friend? Who's the person that if I wanted to really get to know you, if I said, well, other than you, because you're the expert on you, who else could I talk to that would tell me who you are? Who would that be? Who would your nearest and dearest friend be? Who's the person that's been with you through the good times and the tough times? Who's the person when crisis comes, you would call? Who's the person when you need counsel, you would pursue? Who's the person when something wonderful has happened, you would call to celebrate with them? Your nearest and dearest friend. For me, it's my wife, Grace. We've been together since we were 17. We've had 28 years together. She's my best friend. If you wanted to know anything about me, she would be the expert. In Jesus' life, who was his best friend? his nearest and dearest, his closest, most intimate friend. I would argue it's this man named John, which is a pretty significant relationship. God becomes a man, enters into human history. And the truth is we don't get to choose our family, right? For good or bad, God chooses our family. 
but we get to choose our friends. Who are the people we're gonna do life with? Jesus could have chosen anyone to be his friend and he chose John. That's very significant, that's very insightful. So if we want to know anything about Jesus, the best person to ask after Jesus would be John. So when it comes to this man, John, it can get confusing because there's about nine guys in the New Testament named John. Uh, Perhaps the most famous is John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin. Uh, This other man, John, is one of Jesus' disciples. Um, And he is called repeatedly in the gospel of John, quote, the one whom Jesus loved. That's how we know that it's his best friend. Jesus knew a lot of people, he he loved all people, but there was one person that he really loved that was nearest and dearest to him, that's this man, John. So we'll call him John the Beloved to distinguish him from John the Baptizer. Now, as we jump into it and we look at this life of this man, John, I'm gonna ask some questions regarding his life to help you consider your life. Here's the first one. Um, Does your life have a dimmer switch? How many of you, You're just an on-off switch. You know what I'm talking about? You're in, you're out, you're hot, you're cold, you're all, you're nothing. Some of you are dimmer switch. You're like, well, over time I get committed, I do my research, I'm a little more cautious. How many of you are more cautious personality? We'll call you the dimmer switches, okay? How many of you, you're on-off switch, that's all you got, you're all or nothing, okay? You on-off people, you're you're like John. I'm more like that too. Um, His life didn't have a dimmer switch. He He was all or nothing. And and the truth is, if you're that intense, direct person, that's really good if you're going the right direction. And it's it's really a problem if you're going the wrong direction. And it's really, really a problem if you're married to the person going the wrong direction, amen? Okay, so here's John. I want you to look at some snapshots of his life. And what the Bible does, it'll give us some vignettes from John's life. Here's one. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, this is very early. At this point, John is a young man. He's perhaps in his 20s. So you guys that are in your 20s, you can identify with him. He, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, uh, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. So they're out in the Sea of Galilee. Get yourself sort of out into a more uh, remote, desolate, desert-like, sort of Phoenix Valley-esque place. And that's what Israel looks like. We've been there as a family. And when you think of the Sea of Galilee, maybe you think of like a little... Lake, it's actually enormous, it's massive. Uh, if you've been to like the shores of Lake Michigan and it's, it's a little overwhelming, it almost seems like an ocean. The Sea of Galilee is very large, it's kind of like that. And so there was a lot of fishermen who would make their living uh, fishing the sea. And among those are two brothers, uh, Andrew and Simon. And Simon, his name's gonna be changed to a guy named Peter, okay? So now these people are entering the story, it's two brothers, Um, and they were fishermen. Going a little farther, he sees two more brothers. So two teams of brothers out fishing on the Sea of Galilee, James, the son of Zebedee, that's their dad, and John, his brother. So so there's there's John. Here's where John makes his, his entrance. The curtain pulls back and this is where John walks out onto the stage of human history. So you've got two brothers. They're both fishing in their father's business, two separate families in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus walks by and they were in their boats mending their nets. So if you're a small business leader, you know, you're always working on your small business. That's what they're doing. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Okay. How many of you, you work for a family business or you work for your parents, your grandparents, 
and your company is one that's owned by the family. So you grow up serving in the business. And then the goal is one day you'll inherit the business. And this is how you feed yourself. This is how you feed your family. And this is also what you're gonna pass on for your legacy. So this is everything, amen? Jesus comes along and says, leave that and follow me. And what does John do? He literally drops his nets and walks away to follow Jesus. Immediately, that's the language that's used here, immediately. Some of us are people who will obey Jesus eventually. <laughs> John's one of those guys, he'll obey Jesus immediately. Do you see that intensity, that passion? And, and he doesn't really consider the downside. Some of you, your life is a dimmer switch. You would be running all the numbers, amen? Well, how will I feed my family? What will my income be? Can I maintain my mortgage? What will this do to my debt ratio? Christmas will be weird if I just quit the family business and walked away from my dad. Uh, what will our future be? Will I have a company to hand my family? Some of you are people, your life is like a dimmer switch and you, you're slow to obey because you start considering all the downside and all the implications and applications. And as a result, you get a little cautious or a little fearful. John's not like that. He's sort of all or nothing. He's in or out, he's hot or cold, he's on or off. Jesus says, leave everything and follow me. And he does. Imagine this is you. Just think of this for a moment. You're, you're working your job tomorrow. Maybe, maybe you're in IT or you're at a tech company and you literally just drop your laptop, leave your phone, leave your keys, leave your wallet and off you go. Not even a regard for what could happen next. This is like a construction worker at the job site drops all their tools, right? Literally just leaves the keys in their truck and just walks away to follow Jesus leaves everything behind. That's John. Now, what you're gonna see is that's a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon what he's so excited about, amen? And so how many of you, your life is like that? You're one of those intense personalities. You make decisions quickly. You're emotional, maybe even impetuous. But once you make a decision that you're in, you're in. I'll be honest with you, I'm like that. That's why I'm up front, okay? Uh, I, I, I'm a very, I love Jesus. When I got saved at 19, I went from off to on. I love Jesus and I'm in, all in, straightforward. Um, some people, that's not necessarily their experience to begin with, but they get there. I want you to see that, that, that God gave a personality to John, like God has given a personality to you. And it's not always a good thing, but it can become a good thing. And we'll get to that eventually. Tell you a few other things real quickly about uh, John, he may have been a cousin of Jesus as well. There's a woman named Salome, this is a bit of a tangent, but it seems like her and Jesus' mother Mary may be related. And so what you've got here, you've got potentially Jesus' relative, which would make John the baptizer and John the beloved both relatives. And you'll see that John is going to do ministry with his brother and that Simon, Peter, and also Andrew are gonna do ministry together as brothers. Here's what I want you to see, that God likes it when families do ministry together. God likes it when brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and moms and dads are doing ministry together. That's why we love you and we're honored to have you. And it's how we do ministry as a family. For us, even planting this church, it's a family event. One of the jokes at our house as we've been having dinner together is I call the kids the Levites because in the Old Testament, the Levites were a ministry family and everybody worked together. 
So I'll get them up early in the morning. Hey, Levites, it's time to go do demo. So we do ministry in life as a family. And what you see here is God uses those pre-existing family relationships to bring together the core ministry of Jesus. Two brothers, two brothers, and also one group of brothers might be cousins. John the Baptist might be cousin. It's a lot of family ministry coming together. First question is, do you have a dimmer switch on your life? Second one, um, when do you become overbearing? You'll notice I didn't ask do, amen? Right, okay, there's a lot of spouses that are really excited about this point, okay? Uh, when do you become, we all become overbearing at some point, right? There's something we're opinionated about, something we're intense about, something that we, we wanna see happen. There's a sense of urgency for us. We all have this. Some of us live there a little too much. Some of us visit there upon occasion. Here's an occasion in his life where he is, John is totally overbearing. Now, let me say this too. One of the reasons we know that God wrote the Bible and not the people in the Bible is because the Bible makes the people in the Bible look bad, amen? Right? If I write a book, I'm gonna make myself look good, okay? And you would too. Here, when the Bible is written, it shows people for who they really are. This is God's perspective of us and he loves us and he cares for us. He's not trying to shame or berate us, but he'll give us people's life story as an example. And then that gives us encouragement because we think, well, if God could use somebody like that, God could use me. If God could forgive somebody like that, God for could forgive me. Here's what it says in Mark 3, 17. James, the son of Zebedee and John, there he is, the brother of James, who, uh, whom he gave the name Benerges, that is the sons of thunder. So John and his brother, what's their nickname? The sons, you gotta say it like this, the sons of thunder. You have to say it like that, okay? Okay, how many of you watch wrestling and think it's real? Okay, okay, okay. okay if I, it's not, I hate to, I now, you know, we'll do counseling now and I'll, you know, I'll pray for you and you'll have inner healing, but counseling, Wrestling is fake, amen? amen? Okay, I didn't know that when I was a little boy. I grew up, my grandpa George was one of my favorite people on, my earth, on the earth. He was a diesel mechanic and uh, I loved him with all my heart. He was super fun to hang out with. We'd build stuff in his wood shop. Um, every time the ice cream man would come around the cul-de-sac, all the kids would stop the ice cream man. And grandpa George's rule was, if you want ice cream, I'll buy it. He kept a, a bag of lollipops in his Oldsmobile. And if you rode with grandpa George, you always got a sucker. That's why... We have suckers here for the kids and Lord willing, we always will, just as a little reminder to me of Grandpa George. Well, Grandpa George really loved caramel apples and wrestling, okay? And so grandma did not like us eating caramel apples or watching wrestling. And so what would happen is when Grandpa George would tuck me in bed at night, if he winked, if I was at his house, that meant pretend you're sleeping. And when grandma's asleep, we'll sneak up and watch wrestling and eat caramel apples. That was our deal, okay? <laughs> My grandpa George was a big man. He finally gave up on anything with a waist, just went to overalls and he'd just eat caramel apples and let the overalls out. That was my grandpa George. And so I would get up late at night and I would eat caramel apples as a little kid. My grandpa George passed away when I was 10 and I would eat the caramel apples and watch the wrestling. And it was a little hard because we couldn't yell because we didn't want to wake grandma up and get busted. But anyways, we, uh, we would watch wrestling together and my grandpa would get so excited. It was pretty evident to me that he thought it was real. And what would happen sometimes, some of you are like, where's this point going? It, it's going, just hang in there. Um, what would happen is oftentimes they would do tag team wrestling. Any of you seen that or remember that? And the tag team wrestling sometimes were brothers. 
So the brothers had come in with the crazy leather boots, not sure where they got those, you know, with the tassels and then, you know, and they come in, usually long hair, and they're, they're just yelling and screaming and sweating, and they jump over the top turnbuckle, and they're chest thumping, and, and the brothers are the tag team wrestlers. That's like James and John, amen? That's how I see them. I see them, they're, they're just white tassels on the boots. They're, they're, they're all just oiled up, screaming and yelling, running down the aisle to some Metallica soundtrack, jumping over the top turnbuckle. Woo, the sons of thunder, the sons of thunder, the sons of thunder. I just, that's how I see them. They're intense. Do you have any friends like that? Okay. They're exhausting and very exciting because they're always on and they're ready to go and they're so fired up. And these guys are the sons of thunder. And who gave them that amazing name? Jesus. <laughs> That's awesome, okay? That's awesome. The sons of thunder. So let's just infer from Jesus' title for these guys. They may have been a little intense personality-wise, amen? Any of you actually been through a thunderstorm? Yeah, you get them here during monsoon season, right? We moved in and, 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 and all of a sudden, boom, thunder hit the valley and you know, everybody stops, everything stops and, and it's a little unsettling. It's a little overbearing. It's, it's a little intimidating. Well, the sons of thunder are like that, amen? Okay, and, and for those of you that have big, loud personalities, there's a place for you in the Bible. Okay, there we go. Third question. Uh, have you said things you regret, okay? If you haven't, ask someone who knows you and they will remind you of the things that you've said that you should regret. Now, if you Google my name, you will see that I have said things that I regret. We all have said things that we regret. John said things that he regrets. How many of you, there are things you're like, man, I wish I had a string on that and could pull that back. Um, I hit send and then the Holy Spirit showed up two minutes later, the timing was terrible. Okay, he, Jesus, sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Let me tell you about the Samaritans. So there were the Jewish people and then the Samaritans were like an offshoot of Judaism. They kind of had a little bit of the Bible. They kind of had their own book. They walked away from the temple. They made their own temple. They kind of created their own newfangled religion. It is not totally unlike today, Christianity and let's say Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnessism. They kind of started out over here and then they made some changes. And as a result, they would say that they're on the same team, but we don't think they're on the same team. And there's some things that are different and distinct. And, and so they're, they're not the same. So in this context, the Samaritans were like that to the Jewish people. The Jewish people thought, well, these Samaritans are wrong and they're not faithful and they've kind of gone off on their own thing and they've created their own religion. And so these two groups didn't get along. In fact, um, to get from one part of Israel to the other, uh, sometimes Jews would actually travel around Samaria because they didn't even want to be involved, okay? So what's happening is Jesus is going to the Samaritans. That's a big deal. A lot of religious leaders would go around the Samaritans. Think of any group of people in our day that people just don't like. You're like, I don't want to deal with them. I don't like them. I, I just want to avoid them. Wherever they're hanging out, that's not where I'm, I'm hanging out, okay? But people did not receive him. So when Jesus shows up, they're not interested. They're not interested. So what are they going to do? When his disciples, James and there's John saw it, they said, Lord, <laughs> do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
That's not a real pastor's heart, amen? Like, you know, Lord Jesus, well, first of all, the arrogance. Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? It's not even, hey, Jesus, could you call down fire from heaven? They're like, we got this, we can do it. We were, we were reading in the Old Testament today and uh, there was Sodom and Gomorrah was a town like this. And you know, flaming road tar came out of heaven and killed everyone. And we thought, let's do it again. Let's do it again, Lord, right? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, okay? Let me ask you this, what group of people, what kind of people do you just not like? Like if God came to you and said, okay, one group of people, you could call fire down from heaven and kill them all. You'd be like, okay, <laughs> I know who that is, right? John's heart here, it is, uh, it's regretful. Jesus has come to the Samaritans and rather than loving them and serving them and ministering to them, John wants to destroy them. So whatever group, this could be a racial group, a political group, whatever group you think, you know what? It would just be better if they were all gone. It'd be better if they were all gone. That was John's heart toward the Samaritan. So here's what we've got so far. We've got a guy who really has no dimmer switch. We've got a guy who is overbearing and we've got a guy who says things that are regrettable and he shouldn't say, okay? At this point, it's not a great biography, amen? Not, not great, not great. This is a guy who is very difficult to get straightened out. And so what I want you to see is whatever your life story is, like John's, if we're honest, we'd say, ah, there are some things about me that just aren't very good and they need to be changed. And what changed in John's life, because if the story ended here, the end. Young, arrogant, loud man says regrettable things and is overbearing, domineering, intimidating, and, and, and unloving, the end. Okay. All by himself, that's who John is. And then what happens is he starts walking with Jesus and he gets redirected. Now, let me say this, your greatest weakness is your strength misdirected. Get that? Your greatest weakness is your strength misdirected. I'll show you. So David is a man in the Old Testament. He's passionate, amen? But what does he do? He sleeps with a married woman, gets her pregnant and murders her husband. That's a misdirected, passionate man, amen? Peter is a guy who's bold in the New Testament and he bosses Jesus around and tells Jesus what to do. That's, that's courage misdirected. Now, when you become a Christian, what happens is God redirects you. That's what he does, okay? He doesn't necessarily change your personality. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't neglect any of your experiences or your relationships. He takes everything that's misdirected and he causes it to be redirected. Some will talk about repentance. You hear this word a lot in the Bible. It's a change of mind and a change of life direction. It's somebody getting redirected by God. So let me say that your personality is not a problem. It just needs to be redirected. Your life experience is not a problem. It just needs to be redirected. Your skills, talents, and abilities, they're not a problem. They just perhaps need to be redirected. Your relationships are not a problem. 
They just need to be redirected. Maybe God would take the most broken parts of you, the most hurting parts of you, the most flawed parts of you, the most regrettable parts of you, and he would redirect them. And out of that would come your greatest ministry. And I think that oftentimes ministry that is most significant comes out of the deepest pain. And I think as he grew older, I believe John looked back and some of the things he said and did as a young man, and he probably have meditated on Isaiah, you know, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. But then he saw his whole life redirected. And let me show you one example, there could be many. And my question to you would be this, how is God right now redirecting your life? For my family and I, this is a big season of redirection. And so we love you and we're glad to be here with you. And maybe this is a season of redirection in your life. And the Holy Spirit would speak to you about this today. But let me show you this one occasion in uh, Mark's gospel where Jesus takes John and John is misdirected. And because of his intersection with Jesus, John gets redirected. Does that make sense? Here it is. James and John, there he is again, the, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, came to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, teacher, this is funny too. If you don't know this, there are parts of the Bible that are funny. Okay, they're, they're kind of sarcastic or a little quirky if you, if you actually read them with open eyes, not religious eyes. Teacher, we want, <laughs> I mean, tell me this is funny. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> I mean, imagine going up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we were talking about it. And me and my brother feel like we need an assistant. You know, a good assistant who does what they're told. And we were thinking, well, who would be a better assistant than Jesus? So you're welcome, we're hiring you. Now, as our assistant, it's very simple. We wrote up this job description and it says, do whatever we tell you to do. So we just like you to sign this contract and serve as our assistant. Do you, do you sense perhaps with John, maybe a little bit of arrogance? But the truth is, now, now let's pull back and look at ourselves. How many of us have looked at Jesus and tried to tell him what to do? All right, so, okay, now we're all convicted, amen? Somebody say, no, 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 that's just praying. Well, you could, you could call it praying. It's still trying to boss Jesus around, okay? <laughs> Jesus, you need to do this. He's like, well, actually, I'm sitting on a throne. I feel like I get to do what I want. You know, uh, uh, and some of us will even give Jesus sort of demands and ultimatums. You need to do this by this time. Otherwise, I'm not gonna worship you. And Jesus in heaven going, oh no, you're out. What shall I do? You know, um, John is one of those guys. He, he, he starts by wanting to tell Jesus what to do, okay? And I think as, as new Christians or Christians that haven't had good teaching, sometimes we wanna just tell Jesus what to do. Jesus shows up, I'm here, good. Good, well, I have a list for you, get to work. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we tell you to do. Okay. True or false, he's a leader. True or false? You're a leader if you're telling God what to do, okay? Misdirected, quite a bit, okay? So Jesus is gonna redirect this leader. <laughs> and here's what they ask. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one in your left hand in glory. This is a big request, amen? <laughs> How many of you would be a big request to walk up to Jesus and say, I'd like to have dinner with you? That's a big request. These guys are probably reading Isaiah. In Isaiah, six, 700 years before Jesus even walked on the earth, Isaiah says in Isaiah six, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, 
in glory, surrounded by angels, all crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And James and John thought, you know, we need two more chairs. <laughs> we need two more chairs. One of the right, so they come to Jesus. This is a crazy request, right? We knew you were in heaven as God and glory. We'll know you return to heaven as God and glory. And uh, we were thinking one seat is good, three seats would be better. And because we're humble, we have decided you can get the one in the middle. You're welcome, we're humble like that, okay? <laughs> it's a little funny, right? And so one at your right, one at your left, that's all we're asking. Because we were just thinking, you know, when the angels are worshiping, we should be there as the object of eternal glory alongside of you, okay? Arrogant, would you say? We, we would say high self-esteem, okay? <laughs> Right? We would say, boy, that kid's got really high self-esteem. Grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in glory. Now, let's, let's reverse the story. Let's say you're Jesus, okay? What would you do to John? Okay. Would you go back and say, oh, now's the time we're gonna call fire down from heaven, right? <laughs> would, you, would you rebuke him? Would you yell at him? Would you fight with him? Would you be offended? What would you say? What would you do? If somebody walks up to you and just makes an absolutely ridiculous request that is so self-seeking, self-serving, that you're just offended by it, what would you say and do? Okay, here's what Jesus says. Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your... This is what's amazing about Jesus. Jesus looks at John and he says, you know, this guy is misdirected. <laughs> and he needs to be redirected. And what I love about Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, how dare you want to lead? How dare you want to influence? How dare you want to be in a position of significance? What he says is, let me tell you how to get there. Serve people, be humble, care about others, not yourself. Oh, Jesus says in the following verse, I don't have it up here, he says, for the son of man, he's talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What I love about Jesus, he takes John who is misdirected and he causes him to become redirected. John says, I wanna be great. Jesus says, let me tell you how to do that. And John's leaning forward, ear forward. Okay, Jesus, how do I be great? Serve people humbly. That's not the answer he was anticipating, amen? And this is what Jesus does for all of us. He redirects us by causing us to examine our motives. And is this about me or people? Is this, is this about me being treasured or is this about me helping? Is this about me being the center of attention or is this about others being loved and cared for? That's the posture that Jesus takes. Jesus is right now in glory, and he's also the most humble servant that's ever walked the earth. And there's a correlation between humble service 
and then God exalting you because the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves and God will lift you up in due time. That's what it says. This is so countercultural. We are all naturally like John and the world that we're in absolutely thinks like John. How to use God for power to do what we want so that we can be in a position whereby we are glorified and others praise our name. And Jesus comes and he inverts the entire paradigm and he says basically to John, I love you, your, your, your desires can be redirected, but you need to understand what it is to have humility and the heart of a servant, okay? So my question to you is, how is God redirecting your life? Because some of us would come to God and we would say, Jesus, give me money. Jesus, give me health. Jesus, give me a spouse. Jesus, give us children. Jesus, give us authority. Jesus, give us a ministry. And Jesus might say, okay, let's redirect that. Let's redirect that. Let's examine your heart and your motives. Maybe what you want is not very good. So I'm going to have to say no. Maybe what you want is not necessarily bad, but it's very much misdirected and it needs to be redirected. And I love the fact that what Jesus doesn't do is look at John and say, I'm done with you. I'm sick of you. I'm tired of you. You've wearied me. You keep saying and doing things that are just so frustrating to me. What I love about Jesus, he doesn't rebuke him at all. He redirects him. And I want you to know that that's, that's God's heart toward each of us. That's God's heart toward you. He's not done with you. He's not angry at you. He's not punishing you. He's, he's perhaps redirecting you. Well, all of that is about John. And, and let me tell you a little bit more about his life. I believe that in that moment where Jesus redirects him, that begins a change process in John's life. And it's the same kind of change process that God wants for all of our lives. So let me tell you a little bit more about John's story. After being redirected, he becomes one of the inner circle of three disciples. And the reason I want you to get to know John is we're gonna spend 13 weeks looking at what he wrote. So Jesus had 12 disciples and then he had an inner group of three. How many of you have a friend group? And then you have a couple of close friends, okay? This was Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, okay? They are there at other times in Jesus' ministry when no one else is there. So there's this mountain that they go up and Jesus is transfigured and Moses and Elijah come down from heaven for a visit. Not all the disciples are there, but John's there. There's a little girl, um, her dad's name is Jairus. You may have read this story in the Bible. It's one of my daughter's favorite stories. Jairus's daughter is sick and dying and Jesus heals her, okay? It's one of the most tender stories in the Bible, Jesus' heart for a little girl. Look at all the little girls in the dresses and just think if one of them was dying or dead and we were all mourning and then, and then God healed them and brought them back to life, the joy that the parents would have. Well, Jesus does that for Jairus and his daughter and not all the disciples were there, but John was one of the three disciples that was there. When Jesus was preparing to go to the cross where he would substitute himself for us and die in our place for our sins. He was in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane and we've been there as a family and it was late at night and Jesus asked his disciples to pray, but he drew three disciples nearest to him because they were his closest friends and among them was John. So John is there when no one else is there. He's there for the most intimate personal moments of Jesus' life and ministry. 
John was there at the Last Supper. You remember the Last Supper? It was right before Jesus was put to death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin as our substitute and savior. At the Last Supper, they're all having dinner. It's a very sober, serious time. They're Jews, and so they're celebrating something called the Feast of Passover, which commemorated their deliverance from bondage in Exodus. Nonetheless, Jesus makes this startling statement. Jesus says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, one of you is going to betray me. You ever had a friend betray you? Here's the friend group, 12 guys in Jesus. They've been together for about three years. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. There was someone sitting at Jesus' side. What does that tell you? Close friend, okay? If you come to dinner at our house, the person who sits at my side is Grace, right? That's, we're together. That's my friend, my closest friend. Sitting next to Jesus is John. That tells you something. <clears throat> John leans back and basically whispers in Jesus' ear, who's gonna betray you? Now, John knew it wasn't him, amen? Because again, John's all or nothing, right? No dimmer switch, he's on and off. At this point, he is 100% committed to Jesus. He's all in. So again, that strength of John that was misdirected has been redirected. He knows he's not gonna betray Jesus. He knows he's not gonna be the one. But he asked Jesus, who will betray you? In that moment, John is the one who's concerned about Jesus. Others at the table start asking, well, who is it, who is it? And it's interesting because the one person at the table who's most concerned about Jesus and his well-being and how he's doing is John. He's gone from being a selfish man to more of a servant, to thinking about himself, to thinking about his Lord, from trying to win and instead just trying to worship. There's been a change in John. He's not only there at the Last Supper, do you remember at the cross of Jesus? So Jesus is being crucified. God comes to earth and we kill him. And he dies in our place for our sins because the wage for sin is death. And the crowds are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. There's two thieves, one on each side being crucified alongside of him. In that moment, do you remember who is at the feet of Jesus? Do you remember who's there? John is there. Now, when they crucified people, sometimes in the movies, you get the picture that the cross is high up in the air. According to archeologists and history, um, the cross was probably not incredibly tall. People were generally most likely crucified at eye level, okay? And very rarely would they crucify a woman. When they did, they would turn her around with her face toward the cross because people didn't want to see that. It was usually men who were crucified and crucifixion was fairly common on the day that Spartacus fell in battle. 6,000 6, men were crucified along the shoulder of a Roman highway. Right? Imagine getting in your car today and you know, driving for a few hours and 6,000 men were crucified on the shoulder of the road. Crucifixion was something that they did openly, publicly, and shamefully. And it was state-sponsored terrorism to say, Whatever this person believed, don't believe that. Whatever this person said, don't say that. Whatever this person did, don't do that. And it would send an absolute fear through the people. 
And so they would crucify people in public places. It would be like today, you go to the grocery store, you go to the mall, and there's somebody hanging up in the parking lot. Okay, this is state-sponsored terror. Today with like, you know, beheadings and crucifixions on TV where terrorists are trying to absolutely cause fear in people. That's why we call them terrorists. The whole goal is to enact terror, fear. That's exactly what crucifixion was intended to accomplish. So Jesus is being crucified openly, publicly, at the foot of his cross, perhaps even looking him in the eye is John. Who's with John? Jesus' mother, Mary. Okay, all you moms, raise your hand. Okay, all you moms? Moms, imagine this moment. Okay, we've got three sons. Imagine, imagine your son, your firstborn son, you're Mary, right? Your baby's born, you hold your son, what's the first thing you do? 10 fingers, 10 toes. 30 some years later, railroad spikes have them nailed to a cross. How's, how's Mary's emotional state at this moment? Ladies, she's, she's devastated, amen? Absolutely devastated. Can Jesus come down and give his mom a hug or tend to her or love her or serve her? He can't. He can't. So he needs somebody to take care of his mom. I'll read it to you. It's in uh, John 19, 25 through 27. But standing by the cross were Jesus, uh, of Jesus rather were his mother. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, his best friend, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. What he said is, John, I need you to take care of my mom. Okay, true or false, that tells you everything you need to know about John. Okay. Let's say you're sick, you're in the hospital, your mom is dying and, and you want somebody to go to her bedside. Whoever you send, that's your best friend. That's the person that you trust the most. At this point, we don't know if Jesus' dad is dead or alive. We do know that his brothers are alive but even more than his brothers, he trusts John to look after his mom. How many of you, you have brothers and sisters, but there's a Christian friend that you actually trust more than family? Okay, that's, that's John. Do you think early on in his life, John would have been up for this job? No. He was a misdirected man, now he's a redirected man, and he's not telling Jesus what to do, Jesus is telling him what to do, and things are going much better. That's the story of life. So he sees Jesus buried. He sees his friend dead. He knows where the body is laid. It's in the tomb of Arimathea, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man who gave Jesus his tomb post-mortem as a gift. A large stone was rolled over the entryway. Roman soldiers guarded it. The Roman seal ensured that it was not tampered with. John's friend, best friend Jesus is dead. Have you, have you lost someone that you really, really, really love? I told you about my grandpa George. He died when I was 10. I could still remember the day I heard the news. I was at Boy Scouts and my mom and dad pulled up and it was before Boy Scouts was supposed to be over and I could still see my mom's face. She was just weeping bitterly. She loved her dad very much, they were very close. And I, had, I saw my dad with his arm around my mom 
And he was sort of comforting her and helping her. And they came to pick me up. And they said, Marky, we need to go now. I said, but I'm not done with, you know, Cub Scouts. I was 10 years old. They said, no, we need to go. Grandpa's died. Grandpa's died. My whole life, as a little boy who really loved his grandpa, the narrative that I had, my grandpa was in it. I'd go to his house on weekends and he'd take me out to breakfast and I'd eat lollipops in the Oldsmobile and learn how to run a bandsaw. That's what we did. Now he's gone. John loved Jesus. Jesus loved John. Jesus died and John was there. John knows where Jesus is buried. So it's on a Sunday morning. John is going to the tomb because John hears Jesus is alive. Can you imagine that? Imagine the person that you love the most and has died and you miss the most, you hear they're alive. You would immediately drop everything and have to go check that out, amen? You go, I gotta go find that. So what happens is Peter and John, the Bible records, they run to the tomb, okay? Who gets there first? John, because he's, I, he's probably, he's younger, right? Us old guys pulled hamstring, cardio, not good, right? John's the young guy, he gets there first, but he waits for Peter to show up and Peter's the first one to go in, but the stone's rolled away and Jesus is gone. The first one at the empty tomb of Jesus was John. You know why? If Jesus is alive, John's the first guy who wants to give him a hug and say hi. Loves him the most. And Jesus is gone. He's alive, but he's not there. So then as he's preaching and teaching and having breakfast with people, appearing to crowds of 500 at a time, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 says over the course of 40 days, who was the first human being to see Jesus and recognize that he was alive? John. Okay. This, is, this is quite a life story, amen? amen? It's amazing. You're just walking along one day and Jesus says, follow me, and you do. And your whole life changes in this extraordinary way. John then, this strength, this courage, this fortitude, God doesn't remove it, he redirects it. That's what he does. So John becomes what they call a pillar in the church. Jesus, after 40 days, ascends back into heaven, right? And John's there right now. And how do you think he feels right now? Looking at Jesus in glory right now saying, I can't believe I asked for a seat up there, right? <laughs> ah, that was just... Ah, what was I thinking? You know, it's all gotten straightened out for John today. But after Jesus ascends back into heaven, John becomes, according to Galatians, I think it's 2.13, along with Peter, the pillars of the early church. Right? The pillars are what held up ancient architecture. So the church was held up by Peter and John. These are the strong, resolved, immovable committed men who love Jesus and you couldn't stop them from loving and serving Jesus. Okay, we want all of you, starting with you men, to be like that. John and Peter are mentioned frequently through the book of Acts, which is the, it's the history of the early church after Jesus' sins. What happens is John's brother was the first of the disciples to be martyred, to be put to death. He saw his own brother die for Jesus. 
he lived long enough that all of the other disciples, they were martyred, they were murdered, they were put to death. John was the last living disciple. Can you imagine that? They tried to kill John. This is history outside of the Bible. Says that they boiled him alive. Some accounts will say in oil. Right, next time you're at a fast food restaurant and they drop fries into the oil or they drop chicken strips into the oil, imagine dropping John into the oil. I can't imagine what his body looked like, the scars, the pain, the healing process. I can't even fathom that. But he didn't die. You know why? John's pretty tough. He's a bit resilient. And he wouldn't stop serving Jesus. So they knew, well, he didn't die. We can't get him to stop talking about Jesus. So they exiled him to a place called Patmos. It's off of modern day Turkey. It's out in the middle of the sea. We've been there. You got to take a boat out and it is high seas, salt water, raging heat, uh, just rocky terrain, little island. You get there, the wind is howling. Trees can't grow any you know, bigger than a few feet because the wind and the heat and the dryness and the salt water, it just makes it unlivable conditions. John was exiled, there was a penal colony. It was like sending a guy off to work camp in prison in the middle of the desert is, is their equivalent. They think, you know, we'll stick him over on the island and there's nobody there and then he'll just stop talking about Jesus. We can't get this guy to quit. Do you see where his strength that was misdirected is now redirected? You see that? You see where his, his on off switch, once he was on for Jesus, that was a good thing when redirected by God. Revelation, is one of the books that John wrote. John actually wrote more books of the New Testament than any other disciple. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Revelation. He wrote five books of the Bible, okay? And we're gonna study 1st John together for 13 weeks, which is why I want you to get to know him. But it says in Revelation that it was the Lord's day, it was a Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus came down and visited John. I mean, this is a crazy life, amen? On the island of Patmos, while he's there, Jesus comes down to meet with him. Right? You know you're good friends with Jesus when he ascends back into heaven, he comes down to check on you. You know you're good friends with Jesus. So he comes down and he reveals to John, Jesus does, the whole book of Revelation. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, that was written by John, revealed by Jesus in what is purported to be a cave where he lived when he was in Patmos. We can't confirm it, but that's what history tells us. We've actually been to that cave and where they believe that Jesus came down and met with John. Amazing life, amazing life. God took all of his courage, all of his resolve, all of his devotion, all of his strength, all of his fortitude. It was totally misdirected. Can I be worshiped like a God? Can I set people on fire? Not real healthy godly ambitions to I'm gonna love and serve Jesus. I'm gonna preach the gospel. I'm gonna plant churches and I'm gonna serve the Lord. That's the story of John. Some would say that he was an unlearned man. I'll hit this quickly. In Acts 4.13, it says that the disciples, including John, were all unlearned men. And what happens is then some Christians, even well-intended, sort of run with that, that all the disciples were just country bumpkins, they were all illiterate, they didn't go to college, they were uneducated. Well, the truth is, that was said by the critics. 
Just so you know, critics don't always tell the truth. Any of you have a critic? You have an enemy? Do you have somebody who's just fundamentally opposed to you? Is everything they are saying about you true? No, there's slander and misrepresentation. And so here what you've got, the critics are saying, oh, don't listen to these guys. They're dumb, we're smart, they're uneducated, we're educated. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. We know what we're talking about. John's got impeccable language skills. He's a brilliant thinker. He writes amazing books of the Bible. And he also spent three years at the University of Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you, that's quite a degree, okay? Three years hanging out with Jesus. Jesus was their teacher, their rabbi. In that day, you didn't go to a school, you went to a teacher and the teacher would be the one you would learn from. So I would submit to you, John was a leader, that John had business experience, that he came from a family business that was successful enough that not only was it a family business, they had servants, they had employees. So he understands a profit and loss statement. He understands assets and liabilities. He understands how to pay your taxes and your employees. He did have leadership skill. He did have business skill and he did have some education. He's a literate and brilliant man. Furthermore, he spent three years with Jesus when no one else was there. Okay, that was my introduction, okay? You ready for the sermon? Okay, okay. Here's the next question. Do you trust John's report about Jesus? After all of that, all of that was the introduction. And here's the book. John starts it this way. Be reading it, be studying it, be praying it over. We're gonna be in it together for months. That which was from the beginning, Jesus. He's echoing all the way back to Genesis, right? In the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's Jesus. The life was made manifest, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you. Here's what, G here's what John says, right? right at the beginning, he plants his feet, he says, this book is about Jesus. And then you gotta ask, well, why should we listen to you? Do you know that more books have been written about Jesus than anyone who's ever lived in the history of the world? It's a true story. You can go to the Library of Congress, more, written, more books written about Jesus than anyone who's lived in the history of the world. And you know what? They disagree widely. There is great disagreement about Jesus. But here's the thing. You need to choose, I need to choose, we need to choose who we're gonna listen to. What book is credible, trustworthy? Who are we gonna believe? Here's what John is saying, trust me. He says, the things I'm gonna tell you are things that I, I heard Jesus say. He's saying, with my own ears. Okay, true or false, you can't get a better witness than that. This is the day before audio recording and video recording. Eyewitness testimony was the most credible testimony. John is saying, when Jesus taught, I was there. Can you imagine that? He says, which we've seen with our eyes, Jesus performed miracles. And what John is saying is, I, I saw it. I saw the little girl dead and alive. I, I was there. I saw Jesus water ski without a boat. I was there. I, I, I saw it. I saw it, okay? Which we looked upon and have touched with our, and so Jesus isn't a figment of our imagination, a hallucination. 
He's not an angelic being. He's like, I gave Jesus a hug. I sat next to him at dinner. I saw him eat food. After he rose from death, I ran up, put my arms around him, said, I can't believe you're okay. And I saw the scars on his hands. My question is this, if you don't believe John, who do you believe about Jesus? And if you don't believe John about Jesus, why are they more credible and trustworthy than John? When he's writing this book, he's about pushing a hundred years of age. He starts off as a brash, loudmouthed, extroverted leader in his 20s. That's why John's my favorite among all the disciples. I, I relate to him. And then when he's pushing a hundred years of age, he still loves Jesus. He's still talking about Jesus. He's still serving Jesus. And I'll close with this last question. Um, do you understand the Father heart of God? This will be the theme for 1 John. John is gonna say, as you, as you read 1 John over and over and over, he'll use this little line, my dear children. Does that sound like a grandpa or a dad? It does. How does a guy go from being the sons of thunder to a loving father. He spent years with Jesus. And as you spend years with Jesus, you start to capture something of the father's heart. So he speaks of the eternal life, which was with the, the father. He's talking about God the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed your fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so your joy may be complete. Here's what he's saying. I'm so happy that I met Jesus. I'm so joyful, so glad, so grateful that I met Jesus. Now, did that make his life easy? Not at all. But there was such joyfulness in meeting Jesus that he wants his joy to be complete by helping as many people as possible meet Jesus, okay? And what he says is um, that as we meet Jesus, then we have what he calls fellowship with the Father. You know what that is? Loving relationship, loving relationship. If you wanna know what God the Father's heart toward you is, look at Jesus, that's what he's saying. When the Bible says that God loves you, that's a father's love. When the Bible says that God adopts you, that's a father's role. When the Bible says that God gives you new life, that's, that's what a father does. Because of a father, we are born. Because of a father, we are named. Because of a father, we are brought home to be part of a family. When we have a father, we're cared for, we're loved, we're instructed, we're nourished, we're corrected and redirected. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God the Father is spiritual, immaterial, invisible. We don't know what his heart is like. And so Jesus comes as a mirror 
and shows us the love of the Father and the truth of the Father and the, the devotion of the Father and the affection of the Father and the commitment of the Father. And so in this first Bible study message for the Trinity Church, I, I want you to make our joy complete and give your life to Jesus and your sin and your failures and your flaws to Jesus. And he will take that which is misdirected, forgive it and cause it to be redirected. That's what he does. Furthermore, we want you to know, I want you to know the Father heart of God. God's heart for you is the Father's heart. Okay? We were talking about this with the kids over dinner, going through 1 John together. And some of you don't understand that you're not an orphan, that God is your Father. You don't understand that God isn't waiting for you to earn the right to be his child, that just like a parent who adopts a child, he just chooses you and chooses to love you. And his goal is not to get the best kid, but to get the kid that needs the most help and to love and serve them as part of the family. It is imperative for me as we start this church that beginning with the men, we all have the Father's heart. Um, I didn't intend to share this, but I feel that I should. There is a deep and profound father wound in the culture and in the generation. 40% of kids tonight go to bed without a father. For the first time in the nation's history, the majority of children born to women ages 30 and under, those children are born out of wedlock, no father. The result is that people, particularly young men, they grow up with a father wound. Either they didn't have a dad or they didn't have a good dad. Their dad abandoned them or he betrayed them or he harmed them or he wounded them or he put curses on them rather than blessings for them. He broke them, he didn't help them to heal. This leads rise to a violent culture that is dangerous for young women where young men are struggling with their identity. And it is a problem in the culture that comes into the church so that 60% of all church attenders are female and young men are the least likely to be worshiping Jesus and getting the Father's heart. Um, when I was a new Christian, 19 in college, God told me to marry Grace, preach the Bible, train men and plant churches. That's what I've had the honor of doing for 20 years. Our entire life has been redirected and we're honored to be here with you and overwhelmed and exhausted at the wonderful opportunity that God has given us together. But it is important for you to know that my heart for you, even if I haven't met you yet, it's a father's heart. That I love you with the same affection that I love my children. That my intent for you is the same intent as my family, that my children know that I'm not a perfect father, that's for sure, <clears throat> but they know that their father loves them and they know who their father is. God is your father. God is your father. You're not orphans. You're loved, you're adopted, you're blessed. You're part of the family. And starting with me and through all the other men, this church has to have men who have the Father's heart and the women need the Father's heart as well, but it starts with the men. When my kids were little and I would correct them, 
I would get down on my, <clears throat> I was a catcher, so I would squat and I'd get down to eye level and I would ask, okay, who, who am I? This is how it would start. Who am I? And what would you guys say? You're, you're our dad. Okay, and I would ask, who are you? And you'd say, well, I'm, I'm your kid. Yes. Do I love you? Right? These are the questions. Yeah. yeah, dad, you love me. Okay. Do I want good for you? Right? This, yes, you want good for me. Am I trying to do my best to take care of you? Yeah, yeah, dad, you're trying to do your best to take care of me. So if I tell you to do something now, are you going to do it? <laughs> and sometimes they'd say no, but most of the time they said yes. Okay? Uh, because relationship precedes redirection. Relationship precedes redirection. If the kids know their father's heart, it's easier to listen to your father. Amen? As you read 1 John, don't read it as a list of things that are commands and demands apart from the father heart of God. This is your dad who loves you. This is your dad who cares for you. This is your dad who sent your big brother Jesus to redirect and save you. Amen? And the father heart of God just bleeds through John. So let me, let me close with John. When he was a young man, did he echo the father's heart? <laughs> no. As an old man, he's pushing 100 years of age. He's been hanging out with Jesus for a long time. And the more you hang out with Jesus, the more you capture the father's heart the more you become secure in your identity that you're loved so you can be loving, that you're cared for so you can be caring, that you're part of a family so you can love your brothers and sisters. And as an old man, John basically had one message history records that he would teach all the time. In John 13, he heard Jesus say this. Um, I'll just read it to you. Jesus said, uh, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John didn't start as a very loving man, but he hung out with Jesus and he captured the Father's heart and he became a very loving man. You're gonna read, I think it's around five times in 1 John, love one another. He's echoing Jesus. 40 times in 1 John, as you read it, I'm trusting you read it, Five chapters, 40 times, he uses the word love. John, as a young man, the word love was not rolling off his lips very freely or frequently. As an older man, he becomes an increasingly loving man because as you spend time with Jesus, you capture the father heart of God. And the truth is, you know, children become like their parents. And if God is your father and you hang out with Jesus, your big brother, over time, you become more loving and compassionate. You become more like him. That's at least been my experience too. So as an old man pushing 100 years of age, all the other disciples are dead and gone. It's the second and third generation of young Christians. Churches are being planted. Persecution is still coming. John would kind of go on tour, right? Think of like Billy Graham today, who I think is just an amazingly wonderful, godly man who's been faithful. And he's at sort of the end of his run. He's put in all those long, hard years. Imagine if if this is John, who's not just faithful like Billy Graham, but was Jesus' best friend. I mean, it's a whole nother category of influence. He's the most significant authoritative spiritual leader alive on the earth. 
and they would bring him into churches, and it says in some historical recordings outside of the Bible that they would sit him up front, and just feeble old man John would say, God's your father, you're his children, you need to love one another. You need to love one another. And that was his message. Up until the day that John died, he closed his eyes and he opened them and he saw his best friend, Jesus. And John right now, right now, where's John? He's with Jesus, worshiping his friend. Father God, thanks for an opportunity to, uh, to begin our Bible study today. Lord, thank you that you can take an angry, proud, loudmouth, 20-something fisherman in the middle of the desert, redirect his whole life, forgive his sins, and use him for kingdom purposes. God, that gives us hope. That gives us all hope that if we hand you our life, it can be redirected and reused for something that is good and healthy and life-giving and loving. Lord, I pray for my friends who hear this, that their life is in a, a transition season, moving, sickness, unemployment, new job, divorce, engagement, pregnancy, those major life transitions where life is being redirected. Lord God, I thank you that you give us the story of John so we can look at his life and learn from it. And I pray that Holy Spirit, you would give each of us something personal, something practical for us to take home, to consider, to ponder about our relationship with Jesus. And God, I pray for us all, starting with the men, particularly the older men, that we would understand that Lord, you are our father and that we are your sons and daughters. And I pray that we each would have the Father's heart beginning with the men, a heart of love, a heart of compassion, a heart of affection, a heart of devotion. And God, I thank you for the voices of the little ones in the room. Uh, it tells us that Lord God, there are already fathers here in our midst. So I pray particularly for the fathers today, that they would know how to be good sons and that they would have the Father's heart. And Father, thank you for this family that you're bringing together. Um, this is day one of the Bible study and we don't know what the future holds. We anticipate if you've given us this many seats, it's because a lot of people are gonna become Christians. If you put us in this location, we assume it is because you want us to serve the entire valley. And so Lord God, beginning with me, please give us the Father's heart to be passionate for compassion and to be uh, loving of loving. And Father God, give us an opportunity to build a great family here because we've already got a great father and we're thankful for our big brother Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.